the bank really is at an inflection point. Its largest shareholders, including the U.S., Germany, other G7 countries have come to the bank and said, we want you to do more to deal with global challenges. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. On February 15th, World Bank President David Malpass announced that he would not be serving out the remainder of his term and would step down by June 30th. By convention, an American leads the World Bank, and on February 23rd, President Biden nominated former MasterCard CEO A.J. Banga to serve as the next World Bank president. This nomination came as a surprise to many in the international development community, including my guest today, Amanda Glassman. Amanda Glassman is executive vice president and senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. We kick off discussing the circumstances around the early departure of David Malpass. We then discuss the biography of A.J. Banga and why he is something of an unconventional pick for World Bank president. We then have a longer conversation about the key challenges ahead for the World Bank this year and why this may be a make-or-break year for the World Bank. This is obviously a very timely conversation recorded just a day after President Biden's nomination of A.J. Banga. Big thank you to Amanda Glassman for speaking with me on such short notice. And I think you will find this conversation very helpful for understanding key debates to unfold this coming year at the World Bank. As always, feel free to reach out to me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. And if you are a regular listener to this podcast, please become a premium subscriber. You can do so on Apple Podcasts with just a few taps of your thumb, or you can visit patreon.com slash global dispatches. I so appreciate your support. You help keep the lights on around here. Thank you. Now, here is my conversation with Amanda Glassman, Executive Vice President and Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development.
So, Amanda, we're speaking today in part because the current and outgoing World Bank president, David Malpass, in the year of our Lord 2022, professed uncertainty about the link between fossil fuels and climate change. Back in September, he said he didn't know if there was a link between the two because, quote, I'm not a scientist. Do you think it was these remarks that made serving out the remaining of his term politically untenable? Well, I don't think it was a surprise to many that David Malpass was not a champion for to address climate change, whether it's mitigation or adaptation. So I don't think it was the specific remarks, but it did attract attention to the bank that was unwanted around the time of COP27 when all of the countries were coming together to discuss what they should do to fight climate change. So it was probably just the straw that broke the camel's back, but was certainly not the first sign that he wasn't totally committed to the cause. And it was something, I think, of an open secret that Janet Yellen didn't look upon him terribly favorably. Well, he was appointed by her predecessor, of course, you know, and he was really focused more on Chinese held debt and debt transparency. Those were the issues that animated him. And I'm not sure that he was ever considered a confidant of Treasury. (laughs) So regardless, whatever the reason, he's leaving his term early. And in late February, President Biden nominated A.J. Banga to be the next president of the World Bank. Who is A.J. Banga? What do we know about him? He's an executive that has a very illustrious career in financial services. His longest stint, I guess, was at MasterCard, and currently he's at a private equity firm. He has also served as a chair to a loose partnership of firms that is working to invest more in Central America as a way to cope with migration pressures. And he has had some track record in sort of digitalization and financial inclusion. But, you know, he's obviously a very renowned business person. So that's what he brings to the job. So he was not on any of the shortlists that I saw when this position suddenly became open. Like, were you surprised by this pick? Well, I mean, there's always a series of criteria that are involved in a White House or given a U.S. administration making a choice. From a development community perspective, I don't think he's very well known. So some were surprised. I know that some of the other shareholders on the board were surprised by the choice. And so people right now are just sort of finding out about his background, his experience, yeah, I mean, you know, it seems like he's someone who is well known in the business community, not well known in government circles necessarily, or specifically not well known in global development circles. Like, why do you think the Biden administration nominated him in particular? What sort of was driving their intention? Well, I mean, he comes with a track record of successfully managing change in large organizations. He obviously has an understanding of private capital markets. I think when officials in the administration think about a response to climate change, they think about the green transition, the need to invest in green technologies, and that obviously involves significant private sector participation. You know, I guess it was seven years ago already that there was the Finance for Development Conference in Addis Ababa where they talked about we should take billions in public investment 
and unlock trillions in private investment, the famous billions to trillions. Well, that hasn't come close to pass at all. So, you know, perhaps what they're thinking is that that deep knowledge on the private equity side would really bring a new energy, new tools, new approaches to risk taking with public monies in order to get more private investment for the green transition. That said, you know, there's lots of differing views about how much is really available to invest in, you know, how much subsidy would really be required in upper middling countries like Indonesia to change the relative prices of green energy versus non-green energy. And, you know, that's not the whole story. It's also of what the World Bank does. The World Bank does development, poverty reduction. They mainly work with governments as their counterparts. You know, the sovereign side is really important. So that part of his background is a bit missing, but, you know, could be complemented by others that he brings on or other groups within the bank. So I saw that the Indian press was praising his pick. He was born and raised in India, but he's an American citizen. Have you seen other key stakeholders approach his nomination thus far? I think other shareholders on the board are probably doing their research and getting to know him. I'm sure that he's out there talking to governments and all the different capitals of the world. And, you know, another question is this process is just starting. It is somewhat accelerated, the election process, but it's possible that another country could nominate a candidate. They certainly have the right to do so. So we'll see how it goes. But I don't think I haven't seen any other government come out with any kind of statement at this stage. I did see Helen Clark, the former New Zealand prime minister and former head of the UN Development Program, lament that his nomination represents yet a continuation of an unbroken streak of men leading the institution with the sort of asterisks that Kristalina Georgieva led it for a brief time as an interim president. But I think that's like a valid criticism. Absolutely. It's really disappointing to see that we have 75 years of male leadership at the World Bank. One would have thought that this was the time. I did see that the German government, their minister for development, came out the night before this nomination by the U.S. and said, we expect to see a female nominee. So that didn't come to pass. You know, for me, the issue really is, is there going to be a merit-based transparent process? That's what Secretary Yellen called for. That's really kind of just up in the air at this stage. But the bank has agreed on a process. And the question is whether it will be really competitive or whether the U.S. nominee goes ahead with no contest. So by convention, it is the latter, that the U.S. nominee is eventually appointed the president of the World Bank. But can you just maybe walk listeners through the process here? So the U.S. nominates someone. If another country nominates someone else, how does the selection process unfold? Generally speaking, there's a period for nominations and then there's a vote. Obviously, between that time, there's a lot of sort of lobbying and briefing going on. But generally speaking, by the time you get to the election, votes have been totally unanimous. I don't think any countries voted against Malpass that I know about in the last round, but I would have to verify that with you. Yeah, I mean, generally, you want to proceed by consensus in a situation like this. But if it is contested, unlike the UN General Assembly, like where one country equals one vote in the World Bank, votes are apportioned by amount of shares that are held. And the US is like 
the largest shareholder, so has the most sway. Is that also included in decisions around like executive leadership? Yeah, I think your share matters for your share of the vote as well. So that definitely has a role to play in this process. So assuming that AJ Banga eventually does become the next World Bank president, what sort of issues or debates or possibly controversies will greet him when he walks through the doors of the World Bank for the first day? What's at stake really is the future of the bank, in my opinion. The bank really is at an inflection point. Its largest shareholders, including the U.S., Germany, other G7 countries, have come to the bank and said, we want you to do more to deal with global challenges like climate change, like pandemic risks, like fragility and conflict in a more proactive way. Traditionally, the World Bank, they operate under something called the country model, which is basically that the country government defines its development priorities, recognizing that those priorities differ depending on your context and what's already in place, what you've achieved, what you haven't achieved. And it's the client country that determines the priorities for investment by the bank. What the shareholders are saying now is that the bank should also work for these global challenges. The question is, how credible is that when you're not adding more money to the pot? So the other fight is about what are the sources of financing for the bank? You know, how much can the bank get from so-called balance sheet optimization, where they would use their existing financing to leverage up more money in the markets by changing different parameters on callable capital or risk-taking profile, or capital increase is another area that they might go into. And then there's the question of the lowest income countries, the IDA concessional window, and whether it has enough money to really support its member countries as they struggle with debt distress and inflation and food security issues. So all of that is sort of up for grabs. And this one year, uh, the bank's board has asked management to follow a roadmap to redefine its mission, to redefine its operational model, and to suss out how much can be garnered from their balance sheet. So that all together is where the new president will come into play. I mean, it's a huge agenda. And the different groups of countries, they all agree that there's a need to sort of renew the bank and reform the bank, but they probably disagree on exactly what emphasis to put on what piece of this. And what no one wants on the borrowing side is that there be any trade-offs with the existing development mandate. And so that means it should be more money to avoid a trade-off. And so the question is, can they get that more money and how? So it seems that among many of these challenges that you just articulated, a key rivalry or point of friction, better said, is between the shareholders, the wealthier countries, and the client countries, those that are are receiving the funds, whether it's around the priorities that you emphasized or also around how much risk these investments should take. I take it that on that question of risk, the wealthier countries are probably more inclined to want to take on more risk so they could let their dollars stretch farther, whereas the client countries, the poorer countries, want to make sure that loans available are available at like the lowest cost possible. 
Exactly. And I think, you know, it's not totally clear yet since we're waiting for the World Bank to make its own proposal on how far that balance sheet can stretch without affecting their credit rating. That's sort of the big question, right? Can you just unpack that discussion that's ongoing at the World Bank for listeners who are unaware? Basically, last year, the G20 put together a working group that looked at the capital adequacy framework that is being used by the multilateral development bank system writ large. And what they determined was this was a number of measures that could be taken that are routinely taken in private sector banking that could make the money go farther. And these range from different arrangements in terms of how the callable capital is used as leverage when you go to the market and the value that's given by the ratings agencies to other kinds of financial arrangements, you know, to leverage more money up in the markets. The bank itself has not actually sort of responded formally to that set of recommendations. They're sort of working through them internally. And right now, what everyone's doing is sort of saying, well, I read the CAF report and I think, you know, maybe the total amount that they indicated might be too large. And others think, um, no, it's completely viable that they raise this amount of money just using their existing resources. And then there's kind of a question and different ratings agencies have different views on how much these measures would affect their credit rating or not. Right. And that credit rating is what enables the bank to go to the markets and get the lowest possible financing that they can pass on to their borrowing member countries. Which is why like the countries that are borrowing don't want any risk. They want the most pristine credit rating possible in order to get loans at the best available rate. Exactly. And that's really the value proposition for those low-income countries, or it's really the middle-income countries, the IBRD countries, the reason they would want to use the World Bank in the first place as a source of financing for their public spending is that it's a lower rate than what they themselves could obtain on the market. And, you know, obviously it's going to be a lower rate for countries that have very high risk and really can't access markets. But for many middle-income countries, they were able to go to the markets in the recent past and were able to get decent rates themselves. Now we're in a slightly different situation with the war in Ukraine, with inflation, with interest rates. So that market access, the deal that's available from the bank is much, much better currently than what they can obtain themselves in the market. And yeah, I think for me, there's also a lot of other kinds of proposals that are out there beyond balance sheet optimization, things like using special drawing rights, which are a form of reserve currency that can be used as collateral to go to the markets and raise more money. The IMF distributed a portion of the SDRs back to their member countries, those member countries can recycle or reallocate their shares. They can just keep it themselves, which is what many of them are doing right now. Or they could say, hey, African Development Bank, take some of these SDR as reserve currency, and you can use that to leverage up your lending. That same thing could happen with the World Bank. The question is how much. And then there are other options like a more standard capital increase where the shareholders would provide additional capital in exchange for, they could pay in a certain amount and that could be used to leverage up more money on the market. So there there are lots of different options actually to scale up the bank's financing. I think the question also is sort of what's happening on the demand side, meaning what do borrowing member countries want? And as you said, they want that, you know, low cost lending, 
but there's still benefits associated with, you know, borrowing on the market, obviously for your financial sector and for FDI and all sorts of other reasons why countries, you know, want to participate in the global financial system. And that demand is at the moment, you know, middle-income countries generally go use the bank, and this makes all the sense in the world, when there's a crisis, when they don't have market access or where market rates change. The question is, what you see proposed is that we want countries to borrow more for global challenges like climate adaptation and climate change. We want infrastructure that has big social returns from this perspective. The question is like, is the cost of capital so low via the World Bank or the incentives that could be placed to make it lower that would create that incentive for those middle-income countries to use the bank more going forward, even if it's not a period of crisis? This is a big open question. Anyhow. And what about for low-income countries that are, say, seeking to manage like the energy transition? What lies ahead for the World Bank for them? Well, I mean, first thing to say is that low-income countries do not do much emitting of carbon at the moment. And as a result, you know, it's not so much a green transition that they need as, you know, access to energy point blank. And they'll, of course, want to access the lowest cost energy sources as possible. But even if they only used oil and gas and did only that, they would still only represent a very, very small share of emissions. My former colleague, Todd Moss, has looked at this pretty clearly. And it's like, even in the most pessimistic scenarios, low-income countries are never going to be emitting much. But that said, what they do have to cope with is adaptation. And I think that is the issue facing low-income countries. They need to grow economically. They need to deal with human capital issues like you know health issues, education issues, and they need to adapt to climate shocks. You know, we've seen even though low-income countries are least responsible for emissions and climate change, they are the most affected in terms of human terms, if not economic terms, in terms of the effects of climate change. So they also need expanded lending. That said, you know, at least prior to the pandemic, countries were growing pretty fast, and there are more countries in that middle-income category than in that IDA low-income country category. Some, unfortunately, went back in country income classification. But at that low-income stage, they really do depend on the World Bank's concessional lending window, and it's one of the few sources of development finance where governments themselves set the priorities on how they're used. The main thing that's facing the IDA countries right now is that because they've experienced all these external shocks, they've used up IDA resources more quickly in the past year or so than they have in previous years. And so there's actually a cliff in financing for IDA in 2024. So what would be terrible is to be in a situation where the shareholders would come together and agree on a new expanded mandate to address climate change and other global challenges, but then allow the low-income countries to have less in terms of resources for their own priorities in the same year, right? So we have to see kind of a package happening at the bank under the leadership of the new president. And just to be clear, IDA is international development assistance, like the kind of bilateral, multilateral assistance given from one country to another. It's not a great name, is it? It's called the International Development Association, IDA, but it's basically the concessional lending window to the lowest income countries. So you 
said earlier that this is essentially a make or break year for the World Bank, a really important inflection year for the World Bank. You know, if we are to be speaking a year from now and AJ Banga has been in office as president for a year, what will he needed to have done to manage the World Bank through this very important time? Yeah, well, I think we're hoping to see the roadmap for World Bank evolution. It's been called not reform, evolution in place, right? That they would have adopted climate change, resilience, and sustainability as part of their goals as an organization. That they would have identified key performance indicators that are related to climate adaptation and mitigation as well as poverty reduction and shared prosperity, that they would have adjusted their operational models so that there were clear incentives, both financial and non-financial, for middle-income countries to use bank resources to address these big global challenges. And I would add, this is not part of the roadmap necessarily, but I would add that they have a replenished and revitalized IDA that can meet low-income countries' needs, given this panoply of shocks that they've experienced, plus, you know, the need to cope with adaptation to climate shocks. So that's what I hope to see in a year's time. I hope that the internal restructure doesn't have to be as traumatic as what's happened to the bank during previous presidencies, because I think this roadmap and this evolution is more about the offer to countries and the total size of the bank rather than about, you know, a profound transformation of different offices and things like that. You know, different constellations of offices work just as well. It's really about kind of clarity of purpose. So that's what I'll be looking for. I would also add, you know, another key piece that's super important will be have they strengthened that analytics and evidence piece of their work, which really makes the difference between the bank and private sources of financing to really show, can you reduce emissions with this money that's being provided? Can you really conserve biodiversity with this money? You know, is there a measurable difference? I don't know if you saw the other week, there was an article in The Guardian about an offsets firm that basically had made up the data on the carbon offsets. You know, this is an issue in our field. And so we really need measurable empirical impact on these big goals, whether it's poverty reduction, shared prosperity, reduction of inequality, or climate change mitigation adaptation. And the World Bank is well poised to offer that with a little bit of restructuring and a little bit of nudging from its new leader. Well, that certainly is the hope. There's always the risk that, you know, with a big change or a big evolution or change in mandate, the transaction costs associated with that can be very time consuming. So I hope they'll really be focused on whether the operations they can prepare and work with these countries to produce actually have make a measurable difference. Illustrating that in a couple of high-profile countries early is the secret to the bank's survival and their capacity to thrive in the future. Amanda, thank you so much for your time. A timely conversation. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. 
If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.